Thank you, Mike. Welcome, everyone. Whether you have joined us here in person or you are worshiping with us at home, it is always such a joy to gather and open up God's word with you here at Chantilly Bible Church. As we continue today in our sermon series, as Mike just prayed through the Sermon on the Mount, our Savior's sermon there, I'd like to invite you to turn with me once again to uh, chapter 5. Chapter 5. And as you are uh, turning there, um, let me remind you that according to the scriptures, multiple places, whatever controls your heart controls you. We see this, for example, in uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, when God cautions us, saying, Keep guard over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. And uh, simply stated, we need to guard our hearts above everything else because God is saying here, our heart determines the course of our lives. And the Bible, as we think of heart, you know, we generally think of Valentine's Day and that organ and all that kind of stuff. It really is in the scriptures the center of a person's being, and it's so critically important. And it's at the core of who we are. When we see it in scripture in most places, it's our personality, our feelings, our hopes, our dreams, and our motivations. Funny, um, there's a popular credit card catchphrase that asks, what's in your wallets? You've heard that, I'm sure. But actually today, I hope you'll see, and as we go through a good deal now of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see that when it comes to, uh, biblically speaking here, when it comes to how we love and how we serve and how we forgive and how we speak to one another, the question that God is really asking of us is what's in your heart? What's in your heart? Challenging, as, um, the, as I've been preparing throughout this week, you know, this sermon, uh, many, many areas that God is revealing in my heart where he wants to grow and stretch me. And, and the thing that I came to realize, that I think one of the most challenging parts about this, um, about this sermon series, as we look at the, the words of Jesus here, is I was reminded that in, as I looked at Matthew 22, verses uh, 36 through 40 there, uh, Jesus points out that the, the Old Testament laws and the uh, prophets uh, are, are summarized in two commandments. You remember they, what they were? Love God with all of your heart with all of your soul and with all of your mind and love your neighbor by the way who is made in the image of God as you love yourselves. The entire law, the, all the demands that the prophets uh, record in scripture, Jesus reminds us here that are, they're all based on these two commandments. And over the next several weeks, as we're walking through illustrations and examples that Jesus is giving here to help us understand what he's trying to say, we're going to learn that God's law did not just prohibit or command certain actions, but we're going to see also it prohibited and commanded a certain heart motive or attitudes as well. But I'm getting ahead of myself, which I must say about every other sermon, I think. For now, I want to look back at verses 17 through 20 here and, and highlight a couple of things that Pastor Mike shared with you because I think they're foundational on today's uh, message. You will be remembering, I hope, that if you were here last week, that in this section, Jesus is addressing his relationship to the law. No doubt there were people who saw Jesus as a threat, and Jesus is assuring them here that he doesn't come with a rival system uh, against the law of Moses, but rather 
uh, he comes to fulfill. He's a true fulfillment of them. And, and if you think about it, that is so true, as Pastor Mike reminded us. He alone, among all of human history, can claim a life of complete righteousness. He meets all the moral character and demands of the law. He alone is the only person in human history who fulfills the literal hundreds of, of prophecies throughout the Old Testament concerning the promised Messiah. And as that promised Messiah, he alone is the only one qualified to be that once for all and final atoning sacrifice for our sin. And that was Jesus' clear view of himself, and it's something we need to see as we move forward here. He also, according to verses 18 and 19, possessed the highest regard for Scripture, believing, living, uh, submitting, serving, teaching. He held God's word is the holy authority over all of us. He submitted himself to the word. He vigorously insisted that everything in its pages would be fulfilled. Verse 18, if you look there, truly, he, he says here, not even the smallest of the details of God's law will disappear until its purpose is accomplished. And then I remember last week when Mike got to verse 20, and it really lays the foundation for the next section of what Jesus is going to say in this sermon here. He, he presented there, you remember, a demand, a standard that would have sounded impossible to his listeners. I tell you, Jesus declares, unless, unless your righteousness exceeds the, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will, hear this, never enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, try to imagine again, just as Mike challenged us last week, how these words falling upon the ears and upon the heart of those that were listening to Jesus today, how they must have impacted. The scribes, after all, they were professional experts on the scriptures and the Pharisees. They were the elite Jewish religious sect at the time, uh, famous for their extremely careful keeping of the law of Moses. They were so careful, in fact, that they added layers upon layers of details and rules and regulations upon the law so that they would never even come close to violating one of them. And they were extremely strict with their students and with those uh, common synagogue goers about what it took to follow the law in order to be righteous. And so I paused here when I got to this point as I was reflecting back and asked, so what, what was it that Jesus wished to communicate to his hearers when he made the statement? And I have two thoughts that I hope will help set a foundation here. First, Jesus makes it abundantly clear here that the Pharisees, um, you know, uh, unlike the Pharisees, a true follower of God knows that our righteousness must come from what God has done in us and not what we can do in and of ourselves. A, a true follower of Christ understands that our righteousness is what God does in us and not what we can do in and of ourselves. It must be God-centered and, and not self-centered. It, it must be based on a respect and a love and a reverence for God and not seeking the approval of man. And finally, it must go beyond simply wanting to keep the law and obeying it strictly from loving the Lord who gave it to us. And getting right to the heart of the matter here, here's what I wrote down. True righteousness is first received hear me, in faith rather than achieved in works so that God can change us from the inside out to live righteously 
in Christ. It's impossible to live all that God expects of us in our own strength, and he's making that very clear. And so we will never know the power of God's authority to save and change us until we are willing to relinquish God working in our hearts to save, save us. We can't save ourselves. The second thing I would say about what Christ was trying to accomplish is while the Pharisees, they were so content on the visually obeying the law so carefully, they were unwilling to humbly look, let God work in their heart to change their hearts inwardly. Outwardly, yes, not inwardly. And so Jesus was saying to his listeners that the righteousness that they needed needed to be something altogether different from what the Pharisees were teaching. Not a new and advanced uh, or a more intense version of the righteousness the Pharisees were living and proclaiming, uh, derived from their lip service and their legal compliance to the law, but rather a new, a new, intent, a new version of Christ's righteousness altogether. Now, pausing to, to make an application here, let me just say that I believe today that uh, there are far too many people who, like the scribes, and I think it's one of the enemy's most famous uh, lies, just like the scribes and the Pharisees, to believe that righteousness is a matter of obeying a large set of rules. And that's why Jesus will emphasize and demonstrate throughout the remainder of the sermon, and you're going to see it next week in Mike's sermon as well and the ones that follow, God, you see, cares more about what's in a person's heart than how people perceive us. Okay? He also values purity motivated by true love more than the technical rule-keeping motivated by a spiritual pride. And that's really important. The bottom line is this. In, in the kingdom, uh, Christ wants his people not to be a bunch of look good on the outside people, but he wants nothing less than our hearts. And that's the thing that I think comes out over and over again as we continue to walk through this series. Now, to drive that point home, as you read on in our biblical text, Jesus goes on to provide six, okay, six practical. I, I said two, I said six last time and held two fingers and, you know, Never mind. Jesus goes on to provide six practical examples of, from the law of Moses that his listeners would have been most aware of. He would, they would have known them. And in each of these illustrations, Jesus demonstrates that God's commandments not only, uh, uh, God's commandments extend not only to the act itself, but also to the internal. Can you hear the theme that keeps coming out? Internal heart attitude behind the acts, Okay. Now, the first illustration that Jesus points to pertained with the sixth commandment are God's prohibition against murder. We read in verse 21, you have heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, I'm guessing that Jesus' listeners at this point had no objections to what Jesus has said. In fact, in Exodus 30, verse 20, Jesus is quoting part of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Moses received this very command you know, years before this, and it's been passed down faithfully from generation to generation throughout the nation of Israel. And thus, the people listening to Jesus at this point would have probably looked at each other and thought to themselves, yeah, Jesus, I, I know there's, there's something wrong with murdering someone, and I'm guessing they might even have taken it to the next level. Yes, Jesus, I know there's even a punishment for someone who commits murder. 
But, but how is this applicable to me? I mean, I haven't murdered anyone. So, hey, go ahead, Rabbi. Preach on, man. Preach on. And, and, and there might even, you know, there were probably people feeling really comfortable here at this point. And, and I know today, even when I witness to people, there are people who would defend themselves in the very same way. But as we look closer at Jesus' words, we quickly discover that when we, when we only say that we haven't broken this commandment, we can only say that we haven't broken this commandment if we're looking at the strict letter of the law and not at its true intent. I hope to show you that today. I'm going to say that. We, we discover that we, we can only say that we haven't broken this commandment, and I think they were missing this, if we are looking at the strict letter of the law and not its true intent. You know, it's funny, isn't it? It's always much easier to listen to someone preach when we think they're preaching to someone else and not us. How many times have you said, oh, I wish so-and-so were here to hear this? They sure needed it, right? But, but when the preacher starts addressing problems that are in our own lives, that's when we, you know, we start stepping on our toes. That's when we start to feel a little uncomfortable and squirm around in our chair. And that's what I think is happening here with Jesus' statement here. Jesus' listeners heard this portion of his sermon. They said, Cool, I got that. And then Jesus goes on to say here, but I say to you, he, who, he was not doing away with the law here. I just lost my place, I'm sorry. Boy, boy, it's been a long day. This is what I think was happening here with Jesus and his listeners in this portion of Scripture. Jesus, remember, is not saying, guys, that, that, that he came to do away with the law. He, he's not adding his own beliefs here. Rather, he is asserting himself as the authority even greater than the ancient teachers. And he's about to give a fuller understanding as that authority from God, God himself, of why God made this law to prevent murder in the first place. And so he says here that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, hear this, will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool, you will be liable to hellfire or hellfire. I think here, like a train derailment here is what's happening here. They just went off the tracks. I'm convinced that, uh, that Jesus' explanation here about the, the, the deeper intent of God's prohibition for, against murder here would have, would have been blowing these listeners away. With this statement, Jesus is demonstrating, you see, that to his listeners, how the righteousness of their spiritual leaders is not enough. They superficially obeyed and taught the law of Moses, but they had very little, if any, heart change. And thus, by not murdering anyone, hey, I'm good. I've got this, you know. However, Jesus is pointing here. Here's my next point. Unright he's pointing out that unrighteous attitudes and their thoughts will not exactly, they're not exactly the same as an unrighteous action. They are just as worthy as being labeled as sins as that murder. The human courts, Jesus would say, you know, earthly judges, they, they can weigh the actions externally. They can look at all the evidence and they can make a judgment accordingly. But Jesus digs deeper here. He's saying, he's reminding his listeners the standards of God go far beyond just a mere external morality to our very thoughts and to our attitudes and to the attentions of our heart. And that's why I believe that in this moment, 
these words spoken must have been shocking to his listeners. And even today, they're deeply challenging if you think about it. Jesus is saying that to be unrighteously angry to another person makes us subject to God's judgment. That being noted, allow me to pause here. This is what I did in my own sermon. As I told you, this was a very challenging sermon. Can anyone here sitting here today or listening today honestly claim they've never been unrighteously angry towards someone else? Or, or that every angry thought they've experienced was perfectly justified? Folks, it's convicting to think the level of perfection of God's standard from right or wrong. But please do not miss the fact that Jesus is making here, I think, a stunning connection between our thoughts and our actions. And furthermore, looking at verse 22, we quickly discover that becoming angry, assuming some kind of superiority over another by calling them an insulting or a derogatory name also demonstrates a sinfulness of the heart that Jesus makes very clear is deserving of judgment. But I say to you, Jesus says, that everyone who is angry will be liable to judgment. That Greek word translated anger here is a smoldering kind of anger. It denotes a, a deep, harboring, brooding kind of anger that almost always leads to hatred. And Jesus is talking here about a habitual anger, an unrepentive anger that we are unwilling to release and hold against a brother. You know, there is an old folk saying that goes like this. He is a fool who cannot be angry, but he who is wise will not remain angry. And as true as that saying is, maybe we have even greater authority because later we know the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Scriptures and, and the Holy Spirit, will instruct us in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, saying, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Clearly, both Paul and Jesus say not all sin, not all anger is sin. But believers are instructed so clearly here that we should not be consumed by anger and that we should not allow our anger to be carried into the next day because it only gives a beachhead or an opportunity to the enemy to disrupt our lives and our ministries. And that's why, dear friends, I think one of the clear messages of this text is we must pursue holiness not only in our actions, but also, do you hear the theme, in our hearts, in our hearts. Continuing in verse 22, Jesus goes on to warn, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And that word insult there is a word, raka, it's an Aramaic term that was used in Jesus' day, a very contemptible word. It was to call someone a knucklehead or a blockhead. It really means empty-headed. It was a very big insult, but it gets worse. Reading on, Jesus escalates his teaching even further. When reading in verse 22, he says, and whoever says, you fool, is liable to the fire of hell. The original phrase there for fool is moros, which we get our English word, moron. And whether Jesus means here the same level of insult as the previous insult or phrase or something worse, I don't know. But the clear point is 
being angry enough to insult another makes a person legally accountable, as says here, to the fire of hell. That's pretty serious. I hope you can see the point, brothers and sisters in Christ, in all this. It means that the real intention of God's commandment against murder is much more greater than merely a prohibition against the taking of a physical life. Jesus shows us here that God cares about the actions, but he cares most about our hearts. Do you remember the reason why Jesus commanded no one murder another person in Genesis 9-6? Here's what Jesus, or God warns us when he says, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man, don't miss this, in his own image. According to God himself, the real intention for the prohibition of murder is that we do nothing, that we say nothing, that we think nothing, that would in any way diminish the humanity of another. Now that being noted, if we take the words of our Savior seriously here, I think we have to admit, all of us, myself included in this room, we're filled with a room with many people who have at least broken the intent, the intent God created the sixth commandment for. If being made in the image of God makes it wrong to murder, I would submit to you, it also makes it wrong to call a person worthless or stupid. Any attack or insult on the dignity of a person created in the image of God, in the likeness of God, I believe with all my heart, is an attack on God himself, our holy creator. Knowing now the intent of God's prohibition against murder, let me make two quick applications. First, we see that guarding our hearts and our minds is just as much a part of obedience to God as our good behavior. What's in our hearts? What's there? Second, if we're honest with ourselves and with God today, and boy, I came to grips with this, we are confronted, brothers and sisters in Christ, with the fact of our failure to live as God intends time and time again in our lives. Maybe very recently as this morning, at the workplace, on the sports field, in our neighborhoods. How's your attitude at the checkout counter when they mess up your order? On the roads, on the freeways, perhaps even while you were driving here to church this morning, in your homes and families, and in our churches. In addition to doing unkind things to others in our anger, we have all broken God's law, the intent of the, second, or the sixth commandment, in a way when we have spoken insulting things to people with an angry tongue. Tell me, have you ever said anything similar to these words to anyone? I know I have. I hate you. You are an idiot. You are so stupid. I wish I never married you. I wish I never had you. Boy, I wish I had other parents and not you. Ambrose Bryce once said this, speak when you're angry and you will make the best speech you ever will regret. He's right. 
how accurate that is. And sadly, to make matters worse, instead of owning up to these kind of insults that we have made and accepting responsibility, we generally make excuses. Such as, I would have never gotten angry and said what I said if you didn't do what you did. Or, I can't help it, that's the way I'm made. I'm, I'm a short-tempered person, or that's who I am. And if all else fails, you know what we often say? Just kidding. Anger is rarely without a reason, said Benjamin Franklin, but seldom with a good one. But excuses or not, the fact remains that our words spoken in anger have a very negative and profound impact on the people we love. By the way, do you know what kills most churches more than anything else? Sometimes it's a theological drift. At times, it's moral issues. Sometimes it's a, a lack of missional focus. And, but I would submit to you that most of the time, it's a lack of love. It's letting things fester. It's not being willing to do the hard work of loving and honoring each other as God intended, keeping short accounts with one another. And it's not being obedient to the command of Ephesians 4.3, where we are instructed, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and a bond of peace. And God knows this. With those thoughts in mind, take a look with me at verses 23 and 24. So, Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Observe here, friends, next point. Jesus is very quick to point out our relationship with one another cannot be separated from our relationship with God. Whatever grudge, whatever resentment, whatever anger we allow to be between us and another person lies between us and God. Let's examine the scenario that Jesus paints here. A man comes into the temple. He's ready to offer his free will offering. But then right in the middle of that act, he remembers that act of worship. He remembers a brother has something against him. Notice not he has something against a brother, but rather a brother has something against him. And here's the thing. I believe that something between him or against him probably fits within the context of what Jesus has just said between 21 and 22. Perhaps, for example, he remembers as he's giving his offering that he's holding out on a brother. He's holding anger toward him, bitterness, a particular brother, refusing to deal with it God's way, unrepentant. Or perhaps he remembers that he casually exposed contempt, the contempt he holds in his heart for a particular neighbor or coworker or a family member, calling them an insulting name. Or perhaps he remembers he has slandered another in hatred and bitter resentment. Jesus says that before that brother takes a step toward the altar, he should do the following. Leave his gift before the altar 
go his way and be reconciled to his brother first. And then he says, come back and offer his gift. Folks, these are not mere suggestions. These are commands. And by making these commands, I believe that Jesus is teaching us, don't miss this, that God places a higher priority on the heart condition of the giver than he does on the gift itself. And as a result, no matter how moving or how inspiring or how spiritual our worship may seem, if we, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, are harboring evil against another, and we have, we have harmed or dishonored a member of God's kingdom and are unwilling to try to reconcile, God will not be pleased with that worship. I wonder today, are you nursing a grudge against someone else? Do you have in your heart knowledge that a relationship in your life has been broken and God is telling you to go and initiate restoration? If you do, it's time to deal with it because carrying a grudge, I hope you can see, serves no useful purpose. That's why in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, God commands us saying, listen, let some bitterness and wrath, is that what it says? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, that pretty much covers the gamut, be put away from you along with malice. That's where you can't even think of a single good thing to think about that person. Instead, verse 32, positive, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. How? As God in Christ has forgave you. We just sang about it, didn't we? We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But God took the initiative. Likewise, in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, instructs us saying, if possible... So far as it depends on you, be peaceable, be at peace with all men. And looking back at Matthew 5, 25, it says, come to terms quickly. Now, you might be asking, is this some kind of a guarantee? Will I always be able to obtain reconciliation with somebody? Well, if you live in my world, no. You know that's true. You see, we have no control over the response or the reaction of another. We only, and we don't even do a good job at that, have control over ourselves. But even if in our efforts they don't make peace, it doesn't work out, folks, I'm telling you, it is always worthwhile to do with God, trusting him to do the work, what he's commanded us to do. And so today, if God is poking at your heart and reminding you of a need to reconcile with somebody, I want to urge you, don't put it off. Prayerfully consider the steps God wants you to take to restore and bring healing to that relationship. That's my final point here. If you feel that someone has a grudge against you, follow God's nudge and do what it takes to make it right. Whether you believe it's their fault or their fault, I urge you to initiate reconciliation. It could be a legitimate gripe. It may be unfounded. It really doesn't matter.
it doesn't matter. By the way, I just encourage you to be patient when, you, when you're in that process. Depending on the depth of the wounding, don't expect, oh, sure, no problem. Everything will go right back to the way it was. No, give them some grace. Give them some time to see that you honestly and sincerely want to restore that relationship. With that last thought, I want to share something very personal with you um, that God brought to my mind as I was working on this sermon. It's about my childhood and a good deal of my adult life. Specifically, I want to share with you the struggle that I had to make peace with my father and myself, honestly, because of his extreme alcoholism. You know, having a parent who's an alcoholic is filled with endless disappointments. Uh, you keep continually hoping the horrors that you see will come to an end soon, but um, it just seems to always have one problem after another. Even after my dad put his trust in Jesus, went to a drying out center, he came back. And when that happens, um, it's just miserable and disappointing and distracting. And as a result of all those disappointments over many, many, many years, I realized in my late 30s and my early 40s that I had developed quite a resentment and a deep hurt toward my father. I felt like he robbed me of my childhood, he destroyed my family, separated us, and I just didn't even want to have anything to do with him. Um, and I covered it up really well. You wouldn't have known it. I mean, my wife saw it, and it impacted me in more ways than you can even imagine, physically, emotionally, uh, relationally, and spiritually. I knew God wanted me to do something about it, but I kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And that's why I'll never forget getting word that my father had developed a cancerous tumor, an inoperable cancerous tumor on his lungs. Um, and it was pretty desperate. They said it, it was so advanced that he may have six weeks to a few months to live. And, and I knew that he wasn't going to be cognitive for very long. And I'm telling you, out of pure obedience, with very little emotions, um, I drove to New Jersey for about the next six weeks trying to take care of him and be with him. And during one of those visits, uh, um, um, I remember uh, my wife came down with a cold. Uh, I still think that she was trying to get me to be with my dad alone, but uh, she'll deny that. And so that weekend, she went with me to New Jersey, but she said, I'm going to stay home and clean your dad's house. You go to the hospital by yourself. For the next three hours, I talked with my dad. I poured my heart out to him because I knew I didn't have much time. And as much as I longed for an apology um, from my father for all those years, I never would have thought it possible. But, uh, but that day, for the very first time, my father admitted that he was a terrible dad and asked me to forgive him. <laughs> wow. I can't tell you. It was like a faucet in my heart, just pouring out all kinds of venom. The freedom that I experienced was immense. Uh, before that, my mind was, hey, he messed up. I'd always hoped that he would get himself together and that he would come to me. And, uh, and so I was waiting for him. It took my dad getting sick to make me have an initiative to go and talk with him. When really, what I found in that was that he was waiting for me all this time. 
Um, I don't know, maybe the illness, maybe just the fact that I was spending so much time with him broke him down a little bit. But, uh, but finally, uh, I got peace in my heart for the first time in some 30 or 40 years, legitimate peace. Um, I wonder if, say, if today, you know, someone is waiting for you, just like my dad, to take the initiative to get things right. I hope my story might inspire that. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you today um, that when we were far from you, we didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it, even as we sang a moment ago. Uh, you, you took the initiative, Lord, to reach out to us. And all the things that we're talking about in this sermon are absolutely impossible, Lord, to be carried out in our own strength. In our own. If you hadn't changed us, Father, if you weren't changing us from the inside out, there's no way. But if we do know you as our Savior, Lord, I think you've laid it out pretty clearly what you expect of us when it comes to uh, preserving peace and having relationships that are healthy and solid and glorifying to you. So, Lord, I pray however you're speaking to people's hearts, even as you spoke to mine uh, during this time, You'll work in our hearts, Lord, and that we will, in fact, be obedient to how you're leading us and that you'll be glorified and honored through that. I pray that I'll hear story after story of uh, relationships that have been restored because of the faithfulness of your people to obey and the work of your spirit as we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.